So let's welcome up Chase. Morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, picking up where we left off last week. We come now to another familiar story from the life and ministry of Jesus. This one is the deliverance of two demonized men. Matthew 8, the title of my sermon today is Jesus' Authority over the supernatural. Jesus' authority over the supernatural, over the unseen realm. Uh, We're going to address this topic uh, through a number of passages in Matthew's gospel. It comes up at different times and in different ways, and we will seek to address them appropriately then. It is a topic that your pastors have been talking about for some time now. We've been discussing the supernatural and the spiritual warfare that exists around us. We've been studying it together more recently, and I've been reading on it and studying it myself. And this is all driven by a pastoral burden we have, a burden that this church family would have a biblically balanced explanation and expectation of the unseen realm. We wanna have a biblically balanced explanation and expectation of the unseen realm, but it can be very hard to be balanced in this way. Uh, C.S. Lewis highlights this struggle in his well-known book, The Screwtape Letters. There he identifies two mistakes we are prone to make regarding the existence and activity of spiritual beings. The first, he says, is to take an excessive and unhealthy interest in them an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. This was the error that we were prone to make in the early years of our denomination, in the early years of our church. Uh, Coming out of the charismatic movement, we were hyper aware of the activity and machinations of the evil one. Hyper aware and excessively interested. God in his kindness graciously corrected that early error, and yet, for some of us, the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. Mr. Lewis says the first mistake we make is excessive and unhealthy interest, but the second is its opposite, excessive and unhealthy disinterest. In his book entitled Against the Darkness, The Doctrine of Angels, Satan, and Demons, Dr. Graham Cole describes the blind spot that so many of us Christians in the West contend with. He writes, so many Christians in the West live as though the story of creation involved, in the main, just two important characters, God and ourselves. The majority world, however, in contrast, has never forgotten that there is another order of intelligent, created life playing its role in the story, namely, the order of spiritual beings. So let me use this occasion to ask you if Dr. Cole here identifies a blind spot in your own theology. Do you read the Bible and do you live your life as though there are only two important characters, God and us. Have you forgotten? Obviously, you haven't actually forgotten in your head, but I'm talking about in a functional, theologically livable level. Have you forgotten that there is another, in fact, another character involved Have you forgotten that there is another significant order of intelligent, created life playing its part, playing its role in the story of creation? The Bible talks about this order, this order, in many ways. It calls them gods, lowercase g. Sons of God, the divine council, angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, watchers, Satan, demons, thrones, dominions, rulers, 
authorities, powers, principalities, and spiritual forces of evil. According to the Bible, these beings are very much alive. They are very real, they are very much alive, and they are very active. They are at work all around us. And according to scripture, we should expect their activity to touch our lives. So yes, there can be an excessive, unhealthy interest in all of this, but there can also be an excessive, unhealthy disinterest in all of this. Both mistakes are being made all the time. There are excesses, but the answer is not to dismiss them altogether. It's not to ignore them. Rather, we must let Scripture explain and set our expectations of them. You see, the accusation made against against people in that, that unhealthy excessive interest camp, the, in, the, the accusation that's made against them all the time is that they let, their, they let their experiences and their expectations be elevated above Scripture. Right? They, they let their expectations and their experiences be elevated above Scripture. And maybe you're here today and that would be your critique of that camp. Yeah, that's exactly why I'm not in that camp, Jace, because they, they just seem to let their, ele- their experiences or maybe their emotions or their expectations, and so they're seeing things everywhere and I, you know, I don't see anything and I don't know what's going on. They elevate it above scripture. It's disproportionate. And sometimes I think that's a very fair critique. However, I would want to point out that those in the excessive and unhealthy disinterest camp make the exact same mistake. They also elevate their experience or their lack thereof and their expectations or the lack thereof. They also elevate those above scripture. So that the mistake is made on both sides instead of letting scripture set our understanding and our expectations. Friends, the plain teaching of the Bible is that we are living our lives in the presence of spiritual beings, and we are living our lives in the midst of an extraordinary cosmic clash. J.I. Packer helpfully reminds us of this when he writes, by becoming Christians, you walked into a war. Not normally something we tell someone when we're evangelizing them, right? By becoming a Christian, you walked into a war, Satan's war, against the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, there is a war that rages around us, Satan's war against the triune God. The name Satan means adversary. And the Bible teaches us that he is not just some impersonal force, he is not just some metaphor for everything that is wrong in the world, but Satan is an actual spiritual being who began as a powerful angel in the kingdom of heaven, but who fell when he rebelled against God's authority. And with him fell many angels who we now call demons. These spiritual forces of evil stand opposed to God. They stand opposed to God. They stand opposed to all that he does. They stand opposed to all that he loves. They stand opposed to all that he is. And their craft and power are great. We'll see that in our passage today. Their power and their craft are great. But what we'll also see in our passage today is that Jesus can, with one little word, fell them. That comes from the great Martin Luther hymn, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. That's what this passage that we're going into is all about today. That Jesus Christ has authority over the demonic, over demons, and he will win the battle. So we've been working our way through Matthew chapter eight, and we're gonna be going into Matthew chapter nine, and it's been very obvious, if you've been following along in the study, that the theme of authority is paramount in these two chapters. Again and again, we are presented with the credentials of Jesus' power and Jesus' authority. 
So we've looked at his authority over sickness, we looked at his authority over nature, that even the winds and the waves obey him, and today we look at his authority over the supernatural, over even the demonic. So let's look at our passage now, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. I invite you to follow along now as I read God's holy and authoritative word. And when he, being Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gardeans, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a herd of pigs, many pigs, was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. (laughs) And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the two or to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. May the Lord bless both the preaching and the believing of his word now. In this brief account, we want to consider three things that we learn here. Three things, one about demons, a second about Jesus, and a third about us. So we'll begin with the first, the truth about demons. The truth about demons. Our passage opens with Jesus arriving on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So this was just after he stilled that mighty storm we looked at last week. Uh, He and his disciples beached their boat uh, on the coastline there, and you can imagine how happy those disciples must have felt to put their feet back down again on solid ground. After that storm they had just weathered with its waves that were taller than the side of the boat and threatening to sink them, that violent storm as it was called. Uh, In fact, they, they thought they were going to die, it was so bad, and so they cried out, save us, Lord, we are perishing. So these guys, these guys, I mean, just think about these guys for a minute. You gotta keep them in, these poor, the disciples are just in tow of Jesus. They're just like, They're just getting wagged around by him everywhere. They have no idea what's going on. So they've had a near-death experience. (laughs) They thought they were going to die. And so, praise the Lord, Jesus is with them. Praise the Lord, Jesus stilled the storm. It was an incredible display of power. I guess they're safe with them. They're feeling good about that. But it must have been a relief to put their feet back down again on solid ground where life is normal, where normal things happen, where they know what life is like on solid ground until they find that there is another kind of violent storm that is fast approaching them. Another kind of violent storm. They were about to encounter a violent storm in the form of two demonized men. So just imagine this here for a minute. These disciples, they disembark from the boat. Mark tells us that this happened immediately. Immediately, they get out of the boat. Immediately, (laughs) immediately out of these limestone hillside that's pitted with caves and used as tombs, there appear all of a sudden two demonized maniacs who Mark tells us were often cutting themselves and Luke tells us were stark naked. So all of a sudden there appears two bloody, scarred, naked, demonized men violently charging down the hill, screaming and crying, or whatever they're doing. Now just imagine what those disciples would have done. Okay, let's get back in the boat. Okay, yeah. That was a bad, this is a worse storm. Let's get back in there. But Jesus doesn't get back in. Jesus meets this this storm head on as well. 
Verse 28 tells us that these two men were demon-possessed. So let's start with demons here, okay? So what are demons? The Bible teaches us that they are evil or unclean spirits. Demons are fallen angels who, ser- who serve Satan and his purposes. In his book, Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem says, angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. He goes on to say, demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. So that's what demons are. They are fallen angels, evil angels who sinned against God, and that's what they do now. They continually work evil in the world. So what kind of evil do they work in the world, you may ask? Demons can do all kinds of evil in this world. They can do all kinds of things against people, against us. So I'm gonna give you some categories today that we're gonna work through. It's not an exhaustive list, but this will give you a pretty good idea of their activity. Demons can attack the body, They can attack the mind, they can attack the heart, they can attack the conscience, and they can attack the person. Okay, so five categories. I'm gonna run through them real quickly, give you some examples. If you like taking scripture or writing down scripture references, um, you're gonna have to go fast because I don't got these on the overhead, so just do the best you can. Pins at the ready. Pop quiz, it sounds like I'm gonna say, but no, let's just go. All right, first, they can attack the body. They can attack the body. In the New Testament, we are given examples of demons bringing about dumbness, like in Matthew chapter nine, where a person is unable to speak. They bring about blindness, Matthew chapter 12. They cause physical deformity, Luke chapter 13. They can cause seizures, Matthew chapter 17. There we're told a demon would literally seize a child, cause it to convulse, and throw it into the ground or into the fire. Demons can cause disease. We have seen this already in Matthew chapter four and a couple other times in Matthew, and we'll continue to see it. That doesn't mean that they cause all sicknesses, but it does mean that they cause some sicknesses. And it's an interesting little point here. In the early church, the spiritual gift of miracles, if you go and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the spiritual gift of miracles which is actually more literally translated the workings of power, the workings of power, it was considered in the early church to be the ability to cast out demons. And I can't prove a point here, I can't prove this, but I think it it could be significant that in 1 Corinthians 12, the gift of healing is listed right next to the workings of power. Because demons cause diseases. And so sometimes you pray for healings and sometimes you pray for deliverance. Demons can attack the body. Second, they can attack the mind. The mind. Demons can bring about insanity. Like they do here in Matthew chapter 8. Something similar happens in chapter or in Mark chapter 9. Uh, when the spirit, a spirit there, an unclean spirit, saw Jesus, we, we read there, Mark chapter 9, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. So demons can, can cause bouts of mania. They can make you hurt yourself. Again, looking at our story today, but in Mark's account of it, in Mark chapter 5, we're told the demonic kept slashing himself with stones. So they can attack the mind. And when people act like this in our day, when people act like this in our day, we generally have two responses to them. We give them either a lot of drugs or we put them away in some kind of facility, in some kind of hospital. Personally, I'm convinced, as I'm sure many of you agree with me, that there are a lot of people in our day diagnosed with mental illnesses who are actually oppressed by demons. And what they really need is deliverance through Jesus Christ. One story I have about this, I I once spoke with a man who heard voices. And these voices would tell him to do things, evil things. For example, he'd been following somebody around, stalking them really. And when I confronted him about this, 
He told me he was following this person, uh, it was a girl, so he was following her because he heard a voice telling him to do so. And he seemed to know things about this person and about their schedule, their life, or whatever that, that would incline me to think that he had knowledge that he should not have, and so I was inclined to believe that he was indeed hearing some kind of demonic voice. And so in the course of the conversation, I happened to ask him, you know, out of curiosity, do you hear the voice any while we're talking? And he affirmed he did. Wow, okay, so what's the voice saying to you? And he told me, I'd rather not, I don't want to tell you. I'm like, but you got to tell me. Like, you know, like, what's the voice saying to you? And he, was, he told me, it's telling me to hurt you. Well, thank you for not listening to the voice right now. I really appreciate that. Demons attack the mind. Demons can attack the mind in another way as well. Actually, it's a very huge way in the Bible, but I think it's one that we often overlook. It's through deception. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, false teaching is referred to as the teaching or the doctrine of demons. James 3 makes the same point. So think about that. The real perpetrators of heresy are not only the heretics that we can see, but are the evil spiritual forces that deceive and teach them. This means some of the most well-known preachers today, some of the best-selling so-called Christian books out there today, have been influenced by demons. And scripture, as you know, calls Satan the father of lies, John chapter 8. So you can think about it in this way. If you want to discern, and you should, if you want to discern where spiritual warfare is happening in your life, one way you can do that is consider what lies are you most tempted to believe? What lies are you most tempted to believe? What lies are you most tempted to believe about God? And what lies are you most tempted to believe about His Word? Demons attack the mind. Third, demons also attack the heart. Demons also attack the heart. I have in mind here temptation, which targets our desires. The heart, our desires. We see this in Satan's temptation of Jesus and also his temptation of Adam and Eve. Satan is the tempter, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 4. And you see, the Bible identifies demonic influence in this way in a broad range of temptations. Uh, Let me just give you a few examples. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, says that Satan tempts us to sexual immorality where he observes a lack of self-control. Lack of self-control, prime opportunity for temptation. That's, that's something Satan wants to take advantage of. Another one, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 say that the evil one seeks to tempt us to unforgiveness. Or Galatians chapter 4 portrays legalism as demonic. Or Ephesians 4, verse 27, Ephesians 4, 27 says that unresolved anger gives Satan a foothold in your life. So this means letting the sun go down on your anger is like putting a welcome mat out for Satan. And James 3 tells us that jealousy and selfish ambition are demonic. So, I would invite you today, examine yourself in this regard. Again, we can see where spiritual warfare may be happening in our lives. Which sins do you excuse or explain away? Which sins do you excuse or explain away? Which sins do you seem unable to stop committing? Many, many are entrapped and enticed by by the love of money, by sexual immorality, by jealousy and envy, 
Some are addicted to drugs, alcohol, gambling, video games, television, food, and many other things. Not realizing that demons attack our heart. They target our desires and they tempt us. Fourth, fourth, demons can attack the conscience. The conscience. Satan is the accuser of the brothers, the Bible tells us, who accuses them day and night before God. So that's Revelation 12, verse 10. The devil, the name devil, actually means false accuser or slanderer. So do you know what demons love to do? Demons love to accuse us when we sin. They love to kick us when we're down, as it were. They love to pile on condemnation. Listen, where sin, where views of sin lead to self-hatred, where they lead to discouragement and despair, when we move to isolate ourselves, when we lose sight of the tender and merciful heart of Christ in heaven for us, when those who have been abused or bullied or sinned against cannot escape senses of shame and guilt, about something they did not do. This is the work of the accuser. Fifth, and finally, they can attack the person. The person. And here I'm, I'm trying to blend together all the other attacks we've seen thus far, the body, the mind, the heart, the conscience. Demons can attack the whole person through what is commonly called demon possession. So this brings us back to our passage here today. It's mistakenly thought though that this is the primary thing that demons do. And that means you've watched too many movies. This is not the primary thing that they do, uh, but it is something that they do. Most of their attacks are much more subtle than this. Nevertheless, it is something they do, and so let's talk about possession. Now here's something you might not know about this. The phrase demon possession does not actually appear in the Greek New Testament. It does not appear anywhere in the Bible. It's not there. The phrase was popularized by the use of it in the King James Version, but a better translation of the phrase that's used is demonization. Demonization. Because here's why. Possession implies ownership. If I possess something, I own it. But that's not really what's communicated in the New Testament. In fact, it's doubtful demons can own anything. Uh, one commentary I read this week said, demons are just squatters. <laughs> they don't own anything. The issue is not ownership. God made us. God owns us. God has put his imago dei on us, his stamp of his image on us. Uh, we are gods. The issue is not ownership when it comes to demons. The issue is control. Demonization is about being under the control of an evil spirit. So, someone who is demonized, this, here's the definition for you, Someone who is demonized is under the control, to some level or another, is under the control of one or more demons inhabiting them. Someone who is demonized is under the control, to some level or another, of one or more demons inhabiting them. And that's exactly what we have in these two guys in our passage who are violently charging Jesus and his disciples. Now, there's a lot more we have to learn about demons and a lot more we have to study about spiritual warfare as we work our way through Matthew's Gospels. We'll get all kinds of instances to do that. Uh, I'm just kind of introducing the topic today and, and, and you're gonna say like, well, Jace, what about this? Or Jace, what about this? Or Jace, how do we think about this? Or, and I'm just like, whoa, we'll get there, okay? Calm down, we're working through Matthew. We'll get there in four or five years. Who knows, whenever we get to those passages, we're gonna get there. But today, I simply want to raise the category for your awareness. Simply want to get the activity of the demonic on your radar. Are you actively discerning the work of Satan in opposition to the kingdom of God?
All right, well, we need to move on to point number two this morning. Point number two, the truth about Jesus. The truth about Jesus. For all the time I just spent on the existence and activity of demons, Matthew's purpose and emphasis in this story is not to promote a preoccupation with evil spirits. Matthew certainly assumes the supernatural worldview, and I'm trying to make sure we have a supernatural worldview as well. That's what the Bible expects us to have, a natural and supernatural worldview. And Matthew's certainly graphically revealing the nature and activity of the demonic in this passage. But the story is not about these demonized men or the spirits that inhabit them. No, this story is about the one who arrives on the shore with sovereign authority over the demonic. Notice now how Matthew describes these two demonized men in the latter half of verse 28. He says they were so fierce. You could translate it so terribly violent. That'd be a good translation. They were so fierce, so terribly violent that no one could pass that way. Now, why did Matthew include that description? Mark includes other descriptions of them. Luke describes other things about them. Matthew chooses this fact. Why this fact? Matthew has a reason for this description. He wants us to understand how dangerous these men are. He wants us to understand how strong a hold the demonic have over them and really how how much of a hold the demonic have through them over that region. That no one's, they are so fierce, no one could pass that way. No one can pass that way. No one can pass that way until one day from out of a boat beached on their shore, the Lord himself emerges and he will pass that way. Now the demons, the demons, they're very aware of who Jesus is, which is really an interesting thing in this story, right? Because the disciples don't really get who Jesus is yet. They're still trying to figure this out, but the demons already got it. The demons already know. Matthew tells us they recognize Jesus and they go and make a request of Jesus. So first we see they recognize him. You can look with me at verse 29. They recognize him, calling him son of God. Now that's interesting. That's interesting because just a couple passages earlier, there's a couple verses earlier, Jesus described himself as son of man, a reference to him being God, but towards his humility and his humanity. But the demons come in the spiritual and they say, oh, we can see right through that. You are the son of God. So that's interesting, but it it shouldn't surprise us really because these demons, they actually go a long way back with Jesus. If you remember, they are fallen angels. And so they've known Jesus for a long time. They used to attend his heavenly court. They know him, he's the one they rebelled against. They rebelled against his authority a long time ago. And so here he has shown up though on their shore. And they know exactly who Jesus is, which is why they ask of him, again, verse 29, they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? So these demons know who Jesus is and they know something, they know something about why he has come. Jesus has come, we learned this from the Bible, we learned this later in Matthew, Jesus has come to bind the strong man. He has come aggressively to bind the strong man and plunder his house. He has come with purpose and intent and resolve to destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus has come to set the captives free. And these demons know something about this. And so they wonder, what does it mean when Jesus shows up on the shores of our home? What does it mean when Jesus shows up at our front door? The time they refer to here, they say, is, you know, come to torment us before the time. The time they're referring to here is divine judgment. And the torture they're referring to is what God will do to them in that judgment. You know, we think of judgment as the end of all things, but judgment is not the end of all things. Judgment is the perfection of all things. And the perfection of all things is evil spirits like demons being tormented eternally. So these demons, they know judgment is coming. These demons, they know what's coming down the pike. They know their time is limited. They know they are defeated foes. And standing there before Jesus, they know he has the authority to do with them whatever he wills. And so they, they make a request of him. Recognizing Jesus, these demons make a request of him. Verses 31 and 32. And the demons begged him. I love that. I love that. 
down demons. And they begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Over in Mark's gospel, we're told that this involves some 2,000 pigs. So this was a large herd. And they're stampeding down a steep bank to drown in a deep sea. All this only adds to the incredible drama of this story. I mean, with only a word, Jesus did all this. He said, go. That's all it took. With just one little word, he felled them. And that's something that's really shocking to everybody here. It's not just that Jesus did this. It's not just that he expelled these these demons. He cast them out. But it's also how he did it immediately and totally. You see, you have to understand, these demons, they are powerful beings. These are mighty beings. Second Peter 2.11 says angels are greater in power and in might than men. Second Peter 2.11, greater in power and might in men. And so if angels are, that must include falling angels as well. They are mightier than men. And then here's, here's a passage for you to think about. Go and read this this week. Daniel chapter 10 In Daniel chapter 10, we're told that an angel was dispatched by God to get a message to the prophet, Daniel. But a demon held that angel up for three weeks. That's weird. We don't think about that kind of stuff much, do we? Held him up for three weeks. This is not a Frank Peretti book. This is the Bible. Held him up for three weeks until God sent Michael as backup to that messenger angel so Michael could clear the way and the angel could get through. <laughs> the point is, these are, these are serious beings of strength and power, which is why in Ephesians 6 we're told if we're going to mess with them, we have to dress ourselves in armor. They are great in power, they are awesome in might, and yet with just a word, Jesus can dispel them. Just a word. He says, go, they're gone. Just like that. He only has to say the word. He only has to say the word, and they obey. But the problem is, how's anyone anyone gonna know what happened? How's anyone gonna see that demonstration of power? How's anyone gonna know for sure that when Jesus said go, they immediately obeyed and went? Well, here's how. There's a whole bunch of pigs over there. And the demons say, send us into the pigs. And Jesus says, I can work with that. Because you see, pigs don't normally jump off ledges to go for a swim. Right? I mean, I don't own any pigs, but I've never heard any of that. I've read a lot of storybooks, kids' books about pigs. They never do that in them. They don't normally jump off cliffs and go for a swim. They They don't herd like sheep do, going off somewhere together. But... Here we see 2,000 pigs all of a sudden start screeching and speeding toward a cliff, going over the edge and drowning. Such an incredible demonstration physically of what just happened supernaturally. That's the point of the pigs here. If you've ever, listen, if you're concerned about all these little pigs dying, I feel you. That's a lot of wasted bacon. <laughs> I grant that. No, seriously, if, if you feel a little sad about all those little piggies dying, I get it, it is a little sad. But if you're concerned about the pigs, you might be missing the point. Because we can sacrifice a couple thousand pigs for Jesus to demonstrate his incredible power. I believe he wanted living proof that those demons came out of those men when he commanded them to. And he sent them into the pigs so those animals might send a message loud and clear that no one could pass through that way until Jesus arrived with sovereign authority over the demonic. That's the truth about Jesus. He has all power. Okay, third and finally, the truth about us. The truth about us. 
A few last reflections in this passage. The first comes from the end of the passage here. Please look again with me at verses 33 and 34. We're told the herdsmen fled, which I love that picture. (laughs) All these pigs herdmen just like, all those pigs, they just went and then went, and he had yelled at, I'm getting out of here. This is craziness. The herdmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the two demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Well, that's a seriously sad ending to this story. They begged him to leave their region. I want you to note the irony here. Just as Jesus told the demons to go, so the people of this city come to Jesus and ask him to go. And there's a lesson for us in this. These people had been told what Jesus had done. They could see the herdsmen or not the herdsmen, the demon-possessed men, the demonized men, they could see them free. They knew what had happened to these guys, but still they did not believe. And this shows us that you can know a lot about Jesus and maybe even be impressed by him, maybe even marvel at him, but remain unrepentant for your sin. We can be struck by the reality of God and what he does and yet not repent of our sins, not love the Lord. So I would ask you today, what about you? Are you rejecting Jesus? Do you want him, like these townspeople here, to simply leave you alone. Well, the interesting thing is that Jesus complies with their request. Jesus goes away from this region. And yet, the townspeople could not break Jesus' compassion or mercy for them. He would go away, but he would leave them with a witness. In fact, he would leave them with two witnesses. Mark's gospel tells us that at least one of these demon or demonized men had begged to go with Jesus, but our Lord bid him to stay. He wanted him to stay as living proof of the mighty power and saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted him to stay as a witness. And, and I love this story. It's, it's one of those, you get to the end, and it's like this horrible ending. They ask him to leave, but then, oh yes, look, it says to be continued. Da, 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 da. This story is not over. And that's the happy news because these men must have been very effective in their witness. They must have been very effective because Jesus does return to this region. Jesus does come back to this region. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 15. And the next time he returns to this region, the people don't ask him to leave. In fact, there are so many people, so many people crowding around him, so many thousands of people crowding to Jesus that it's one of the times he has to perform a miracle to feed them all. (laughs) These were effective witnesses that Jesus had left. So two things for us to take away, two things for us to take away in closing as we consider these two demonized men that were a central part of this story. Two things we'll close about in thinking. The first is this, the deliverance they experienced, it really does illustrate for us the nature of our salvation. It really does illustrate for us the nature of our salvation. Not all, not most are demonized like these two men are. However, prior to conversion, all of us, all of us are in the following condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince 
of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Friends, that is a description of all of us prior to our conversion. We were followers of Satan. So though these men represent an extreme case of demonization, they also represent for us all of us. Apart from Jesus, we are all ruled by the prince of darkness. And like these men, we are incapable of freeing ourselves from his power and from his influence. John Calvin, writing on this very passage says, though we are not tortured by the devil as these men were, yet the devil holds us as his slaves until the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we roam about until Jesus restores us to the soundness of mind. Amen, that is our salvation, friends. The truth about us is that apart from Jesus, we were just like these men. We were just like them, and so we should do, on this side of our conversion, we should do, in application of this passage, exactly what we are directed to do in Colossians chapter one. We should give thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Friends, we should give thanks to the Father. We should sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Yes, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Listen, friends, the only reason Satan doesn't still have a hold on your life is because there is one who disembarked on the shore of your life, one who has sovereign authority over the demonic and Satan himself, and he rescued you from the domain of darkness through the forgiveness of your sins. So, friends, let us give thanks. That is the appropriate application of this passage. We should be a thankful people. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness. So give thanks and give thanks and remember this as well. Just like Jesus did not take these men with him on his mission trip, neither has Jesus taken, with, taken us with him on into heaven. No, Jesus has left us behind, just like he left them behind, so that we could, like them, remain as a witness of light in the midst of this domain of darkness. You see, like them, we are living proof of both the mighty power and the saving grace of our sovereign Lord. His mighty power and his saving grace displayed in us. And you may be thinking, well, Jace, okay, I'll stay as a witness here, but I gotta tell you, I'm tempted to think it's not gonna be nearly as effective as these guys because I don't have a testimony like theirs. I don't have a testimony like theirs. It's not flashy, it's not big, it's not dramatic like they were. And friend, I would tell you lovingly and kindly that you are just plain wrong. You are just plain wrong because here's the deal. Okay, friends, they were saved from demons. They were saved from Satan on this side of the cross and you have been saved from the domain of darkness on this side of the cross. And friends, it is a world of difference. They knew Jesus as the one with power who saved them from the dominion of darkness. But we know Jesus as the one of power and love who not only saved us from the dominion of darkness, but he also saved us from the power of sin. And he liberated us from that ultimate enemy, death. Friends, you have an incredibly more amazing testimony because you can tell anybody and everybody more about Jesus than these guys ever could. Oh my goodness. You want to know the testimony you have? You have this testimony, free at last. He has ransomed me. His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. We sang it earlier. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes I am. You think those guys knew that? Oh, we know that. I'm a child of God, yes I am. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God, yes I am. You have a testimony. 
God has given you a testimony, and God wants you to use it. So let's leave here today looking for opportunities. No, 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 that's not good enough. Let's leave here today asking God for opportunities to tell others what the Lord has done for us. Let's leave here today looking for opportunities and asking for opportunities for God to give us to share with others how he has had mercy on us. That's the example given to us here, and it is an example worth emulating. So friends, we leave here like this today. We have much to be thankful for, much to be thankful for this week, and we have much to, we have, we have good work to go and do. We have good work to go and do, and we have something to look forward to. That the Lord has left us as a witness to his sovereign power and his saving grace. And he wants us to share it. So keep your eyes open. Because you know what that is? That's real spiritual warfare. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you. We do thank you. Lord, we, we just apply. I was just saying, Lord, we thank you in accordance with your word that you have transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son, beloved, oh Jesus. Each of us has a testimony of how we have, we used to chase after sin and we used to follow after Satan. We were so blind, blind to it all. And in your mercy, you opened our eyes. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to walk blindly this side of conversion. That we would not close our mind and our eyes of faith from seeing the opposition that stands against you and your kingdom. That we have an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. And yet if we resist him, you promise he will flee from us. Not because of us, but because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Because we resist him in Jesus' name. Because we stand firm in the armor of the gospel of our God. And so God, I pray you'd send us out as warriors and witnesses of the light of the good news of Jesus Christ. God, send us to those who need liberated. Send us to those who you are ready to liberate. Lord, do a work in our city, in our region, like you did in this one, where maybe they began with a rejection, but by the time Jesus got back, huge crowds were flocking to him. God, we pray for revival. We pray for salvations in our city and in our church here, Lord. We pray that you would use us as we share you in boldness and in faith. all to the glory of your sovereign power and saving grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.